You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from the Encore series, where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. Welcome to part two of The Definition of Insanity. In our last episode, we met our esteemed panelists and learned about the development and process of the Miami-Dade Criminal Mental Health Project, a prison diversion program for those suffering from serious mental illnesses, SMI, or co-occurring SMI and substance use disorders, referred to as SUD. In part two, we'll continue the discussion surrounding the project and learn more about its progress through empirical data and hear about some of the challenges that face law enforcement and the possible solutions moving forward. As a reminder, our panelists include moderator Nancy Lavigne of the Justice Policy Center at the Urban Institute and panelist Alejandro Aristizabal, the Felony Diversion Program Manager of the 11th Judicial Circuit Court of Florida, Sergeant John Blackerby of the City of Miami Police Department, Hobsi Caba, a Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator of the Miami-Dade County, and Judge Stephen Leifman, Associate Administrative Judge of the 11th Judicial Circuit Court of Florida, and Jenny Conklin, the Assistant State Attorney of the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. And now for part two of the definition of insanity. And if I may, it's really important to let our audience understand that you'll find because of the overwhelming need and demand for law enforcement agencies to train officers on a multitude of facets of of information and and need, um, at times there may be a law enforcement agency that will want to cut down the training to less than 40 hours um, or train everyone because it's the gold standard of training. It's not a train-all model and CIT training is, is 40 hours. And that's where you have the time and the platform to make true transformational changes and attitudes in beliefs, expand knowledge of diversity. You need the 40 hours. Um, I'm going to stick with Sergeant Blackerby a little bit longer because I've I've had the pleasure of having uh, two conversations with this group prior to this webinar. And one of the things that came up that wasn't featured in the documentary was the issue of officer wellness and officer safety and how those two things interact with this program in in ways that um, benefit both officers and uh, the public. That same cultural shift that occurred with the way we, that the way the police department interacts with the public, I've seen that addressed twofold within my agency. There, there was a time when, when I got on, you simply didn't discuss the stress and the strains that you were dealing with. And what has happened, especially within the last 10 years, is the culture has become, um, more popular more popular and more accepted is that we are beginning to talk about employee assistance programs you're getting more support from the staff there is more discussion about the general wellness of the officers there's more discussion with supervisors about to ensure that their officers well-being both mentally and physically is being addressed it's made a tremendous difference because it's far easier to come to work when you know that the people that are behind you have your back that they have that they're supporting you in a way that 
you may, we, I just didn't feel when I got on. It was, it was a different agency when I started. And what's happened has been truly amazing. And I'm glad to be part of it. So officer wellness is critical for officer wellness, number one, but also for how officers interact with members of the community. Um, and, and think about, you know, um, de-escalation. And um, so that's, that was the connection we talked about. Thank you. Thank you, Sergeant. Mm-hmm. Um, Judge, you had something to add to that. Yeah, I did, because it's just so important. And I think it's one of the things that we initially overlooked uh, to our peril, which was wrong. And that was the, you know, looking from the officer's perspective and making sure that they were well. Um, one of the most interesting studies I saw actually happened after Ferguson. And they did a a real deep dive into uh, excessive use of force. And what they found is that most of the cases that involved excessive use of force by police officers actually were happening after the officer had left a traumatic scene. And and, um, another study that is so critically important, and people need to understand, trauma is physiological. It's, It's not an emotional response. It's actually a chemical change in the brain. And police officers, and it's caused by a chemical called cortisol, and police officers and law enforcement officers get six to nine times more cortisol a day than we do. And so they may be on a really difficult situation. They may be vets that had PTSD coming into the departments, getting re-traumatized. They may be getting traumatized in the department from horrible situations that they've seen, and we haven't addressed it. And then they go out and something happens and there's a difficult scene and they may overreact because we're not dealing with their own wellness. And now that we, we're understanding that, and, and Hopsy will tell you, she gets 150 calls a month from police officers for their own personal mental health issues in Miami-Dade County. And when we first started, we realized they wouldn't go to their own departments for help. So with the permission of the police chiefs, she now refers them to treatment outside the department. And I think it's also given them more empathy and understanding of the people they're now dealing with on the streets. I mean, we need to remember that tragically last year, more police officers died from suicide than in the line of duty. They have high suicide rates, they have high domestic violence rates, they have high substance use rates, and they have high divorce rates. And most of it's due to PTSD that's gone untreated or unrecognized. And it's really critical we start to have that dialogue and I think if we do that, we're going to get better outcomes for everybody, and we're going to have happier and healthy communities. Thank you. I'm going to ask one um, last question and then open it up to audience questions. Um, I'll probably end up kicking it back to you, Judge, but um, this is a very complex program you have that uh, involves a lot of different actors and a substantial amount of coordination. And it sounds really expensive. And I can see watching this and getting excited about it and going back to my agency and saying, we should implement this. And, and like all my boss can see are dollar signs. So I'm wondering, um, maybe starting with you, Judge, um, how expensive is it? And what's the return on investment? Sure. Thank you. Um, when we started, we had no money. And after we did this mapping, I was embarrassed to even ask for money because we weren't utilizing existing services that were in place. And coordinating wasn't about creating a new program with new services, it was accessing existing services. So for two years, we had no budget. 
And um, what we did is we then applied for a federal grant uh, through SAMHSA. And our county said, look, if you can show us that this is going to show some financial benefits, we will pick up the grant after it runs out. And within very short periods of time, um, we saw the number of arrests go down substantially. In fact, they've gone down from 118,000 when we started to 53,000 today. Our jail audit went down from 7,300 to 4,000. It enabled us to close an actual jail at a real savings of $12 million a year. Um, it's been closed seven years. That's $84 million of new dollars back into the county's budget. Um, the city of Miami was able to get its bond ratings improved, which saved taxpayers hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Why? Because their shootings went down so substantially as a result of the training. Um, we've saved over 300 years of jail bed days just by having the CIT program. Another 84 years of jail bed days by having the felony diversion program. And we keep a lot of stats on all of this. And so right now we have a budget and I don't want anybody to get nervous about it, but it's grown over the years because we have a staff of 25 people. You don't need necessarily staffs that large to get started, but it's about a million dollars a year to maintain. But for the county, that's cheap compared to what they were spending on jail costs, uh, liability, civil liability, police injuries, um, loss of work time because of police injuries, worker comp claims. All of those have gone down like 100%. So it actually is a for the community as opposed to a major cost. It sounds like the program more than pays for itself. Easily. Immediately, too. Right. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, so uh, I have the top six questions that we got um, through the Q&A function on Zoom. I'm going to start with the first one. We touched on it a little bit, um, but maybe we can dig a little bit deeper. Um, can you explain how you're educating police officers on how, how to manage their own mental health as they continue to serve? As you indicated, um, there's many ways that law enforcement have not had proper support. So what specific programs seem to have made the most difference? Well, early on, a CIT began to serve as that platform uh, before uh, eyewitness police departments really acknowledging and facilitating the stigma. You know, it's, it's, it's a stigma across the board. And so here in Miami-Dade County, what we've done is we've definitely looked across the nation for best practices and models. And some of our police, larger police departments like Miami Beach PD uh, has a, a wonderful peer uh, 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 program, police officers, helping police officers. We also uh, have, um, you know, at a larger scale, we have um, Miami-Dade Police Department that has their own in-house therapist just for law enforcement, but, and, and their families, uh, they choose not to go that route. You know, they can always fall back on on using me as a resource. Uh, so slowly but surely, we're finding that now many police departments are modeling other best practices and police departments uh, and developing their own programs. And we also collaborate here with law enforcement and our mental health professionals to provide greater resources for police officers. And, and Hopsi, if she'll talk about it real quick, also did a training just for police chiefs and also for the 9-11 call takers 
and we incorporate some of this with them. So, Yes, thank you, Judge. Yes, across the board, we offer all type of training uh, for all levels of law enforcement and uh, those that are out in the community. And so, yes, we always make sure that uh, we speak about mental health, but I truly thought that I was coming in to teach law enforcement and they too have been my greatest teachers. I realized that they too were in crisis, especially now. How do we expect our officers to perform at their very best and safest with everything that you know is going on uh, on all levels at this time in our, in our nation? Thank you. Uh, next question, this might be an easy one. Does the police department have a white paper on implementation? Because that could be real useful for others who want to implement similar programs. Yes. So, um, so we do have, uh, for example, our sheriff's department is our largest and we did recently uh, obtain a BJA, Bureau of Justice Assistance Grant on police and mental health collaboration. And that has truly helped us to move forward with, uh, with uh, projects and uh, documentation, uh, white papers that can assist other agencies as well. So, uh, of course, also CITinternational.org uh, is a great organization to reach out to, and they can provide a number of resources as well as far as our model and best practices. That's a nice plug, Hathi. <laughs> Um, okay, shifting a little bit back to the topic of stigma, um, one, a member of the audience writes that an expert in mental health uh, field once said that the term brain disease rather than mental illness provides a clearer way of looking at the issue. And so perhaps uh, something as simple as cha changing the terminology could change the way people think about the, the folks that um, you're working with and influence them to be more positive and um, towards changes in the criminal justice system. So what do you all think about the power of language? Well, we know words matter, and uh, we are always reviewing uh, language within our agency and within our organization to be more sensitive and, and more recovery-oriented. And, and we've seen this, I think, across the board in, in Miami-Dade County with the jail, with law enforcement in the community. I don't see too many people. When I first started 16 years ago, we used to call them mentals, psychs. Uh, those terms aren't being used anymore. I think a lot of people have, have become aware that language does matter. And, and I think now we refer to them as persons, persons that we're serving, program participants. Uh, we all, every agency has its own name, but it also touches on destigmatizing uh, the way we decriminalize. Uh, is with collaboration from the state, and they really help our program participants get more leniency or a better outcome in court. And what that helps is with um, school, work, and, and home, housing. If you have convictions on your record, you're definitely stigmatized. If you were arrested, you have a serious mental illness, and now you have a conviction on your record, everything becomes more difficult. Uh, so we, our team has really uh, taken that as, as something to consider, as well as the language we use. 
Yes, language is, is, is so important. Uh, just, you know, just thinking about lawyers and doctors referring to people at times as cases. Uh, uh, we do it the same in, in our community. And, and what we've done, I've found with CIT training is when we have peers come in and speak to our officers and tell their story, it humanizes that person, right? So we fear mental illness and, and that's a lack of understanding. So when we humanize it, it changes the way, not only law enforcement, but anyone perceives a person with mental illness. And now we see them as a person and not a schizophrenic. The same with law enforcement. As we cross train, we absolutely need, we are so ahead in Miami-Dade County with training law enforcement that, you know, our focus, of course, is also uh, educating the community because we've been humanizing the badge, making them persons. They're not robots. Um, they feel, they have anxiety. They have PTSD, many of them, or some of them. So humanizing people helps us to to see them as human beings. And yes, absolutely, language is, 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 is everything. Yeah, I, I love the idea of changing the term to uh, brain illness or disease. I think it would help. And I do wanna add something that the city of Miami has done incredibly well that has helped change the culture and the proper way to refer to these cases. If you're a new police officer at the city of Miami, you cannot go out on patrol on your alone yet until you've gone riding with the CIT officer. And so you learn from the beginning the proper way to refer to people with these illnesses, how we treat people with these illnesses, and it has changed the entire department's culture on how we deal with this issue. Yeah, I know that's um, a really important component um, of the program that I learned about. And I think about um, the training evaluations I've done of various policing initiatives and how we often hear that, you know, especially with academy training, you know, you get assigned um, your first six months on the job and whoever you're assigned to says, okay, forget about whatever you learned in academy. This is how it really works. Um, so uh, teaming them up with uh, someone who's trained in um, CIT, I think is um, a stroke of brilliance to be sure. Um, the next uh, two questions are, I think two different individuals getting at the same um, issue and that's the uh, structural racism that ex exists in, uh, it, it pervades every aspect of society and certainly when it comes to the criminal justice system and mental illness. Um, one a member of the audience uh, recognized the, the majority of jails are filled with African-American men who are suffering from various types of brain diseases. Um, and um, another uh, member of the audience wanted to know how your program is addressing black and brown community members who experience significant discrimination and lack of um, access to treatment um, and both in, in society in general and in the criminal justice system. So I appreciate the question because it's incredibly important. Um, not only is there an overrepresentation of people of color in the criminal justice system, there is a huge overrepresentation of people with mental illnesses of color in the criminal justice system. And so um, it's, it's, it's complex in that I believe in many ways we have put police officers in positions to deal with societal issues that they don't have a solution to generally. And it's added to a lot of the frustration out there. Um, and so I really believe there's an opportunity now to re-envision 
um, the role of society and not dumping some of these societal issues onto law enforcement. Um, but it's also critically important that we, we recognize that there is systematic racism in the criminal justice system. And it's not just that someone may or may not be a racist, the system itself uh, has tended towards some discriminatory practices that we have to recognize. And even in the mental health system, it's equally important that we have culturally competent treatment um, so that we get better results. Uh, one of my mentors said, there's no such thing as a treatment resistant person, there's only treatment resistant programs. And so it's up to us to start to develop better programs that address individual needs culturally and otherwise. And we have become very in tune. Our staff is very diverse. And, and so we have been really good about trying to address it from our side, but um, a lot of work needs to be done. Um, I really think that we should probably be bringing in more mental health professionals to be responding to some of these calls, maybe as co-responders with police and uh, allowing police to be more as a backup to a case that may have more violence. You know, transporting someone with an illness in handcuffs in a police car to go get treatment to me is horrifying. It's an embarrassment. It makes it harder for families to want to call for help. It makes it harder for the individual to want to get treatment because they've been so embarrassed and traumatized through the experience. So we need to rethink this entire process. And, and we've seen amazing results. Look, I'm not going to sit here and say, we started this program to do this. It has happened as a result of the program. Um, but we understand that we still have a long way to go as well. And our whole country does. And I think the first step we have to take is just recognizing. I read an amazing article, and I don't want to get off topic, but I want people to think about this a minute. When the GI Bill came out, um, which my dad, you know, was able to buy a house and go to college on, um, they gave all the money to the states, and those same opportunities were not available for African American veterans who had risked their lives and died in war, and an entire generation lost the ability to achieve uh, wealth and income by buying property, having yeah. educational opportunities. And so we have to think about it more broadly, why people are in the situations. And yeah. there's a lot of issues that surround that and understanding those issues help us start to rethink what we should be doing. Yeah, I, I just have one follow-up question for whoever can answer it. Because, you know, if you watch the documentary, I mean, it's, some parts of it look diverse and other parts not so much, um, maybe because like one of the, the stars <laughs> happens to be a young white man. Um, do you feel like, um, have you looked at your data to see whether um, there's um, disproportionate access to diversion for white people versus um, other people of color? So, so we do keep data. Um, I also chair the Florida Supreme Court's uh, Committee on Problem-Solving Courts, and we are now implementing standards for all these different problem-solving courts, and we have a requirement of equity in the standards, and we have to keep data. And we not only keep data, we have to show that our outcomes are the same for all people of color. And so... That's how we're going to mean for all people. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. black, brown, white, everybody yeah. has to, we have to show that we're getting the same outcomes 
for every different group. And, and that's going to force all of our courts in Florida to make sure that we're addressing these issues systematically. Okay, we have um, one last question from the audience and then we're going to have to wrap it up. This went by so quickly. Um, so this is uh, for any member of the team, maybe um, someone we haven't heard from as much perhaps, I don't know. Um, it's, uh, do you think it is possible to easily translate this program to the federal criminal justice system? Uh, the member of the audience notes that there's only one federal behavioral health court in the entire country, and part of the hurdle towards implementation seems to be a concern that the successful state and county-based models can't be readily um, applied in the federal context. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? I, you know, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll take this one, because <laughs> or, or I'll try and respond as, as I can in this one. Um, at least for Florida, you know, when you're dealing with federal cases compared to state cases, um, the kind of cases that are being committed by people as a consequence of their mental illness or, or kind of connected to their mental illness are generally not the types of cases that are committed on a federal level. Um, it's burglarizing a house, um, it's trespassing, it's a possession of cocaine, um, um, a petty theft or a grand theft from stealing something. Um, those are the types of cases that our individuals are coming into the program on, the burglaries um, of, of curtilage or a car or something like that. And these are more crimes of, 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 of convenience, um, that they're, they're things that happen more because somebody's you know, trying to get money to, to get a controlled substance to deal with their addiction, you know, to, to feed their addiction or, or, you know, it's, it's more driven by the mental illness. Generally, when you're dealing with, at least for state Florida, because um, most of our federal cases in Florida are more sophisticated crimes, um, burglaries, more violent crimes, um, possessions of firearms by convicted felon, which are not necessarily charges that are, are, what you consider more for this type of program. Um, like I said, when we look at this program and, and when we're considering putting somebody in felony mental health or misdemeanor mental health diversion, um, we're looking at somebody who's not, uh, who, who's, whose behavior is affected by their mental illness. Um, and we want to assist them to become better citizens, better individuals. Um, I had done an internship at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and um, a lot of the cases that I dealt with when I was at the university, or at the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, were very different than the types of individuals that we're seeing in felony mental health diversion. Um, so it's, it's kind of dealing with a different yeah, yeah. grouping okay. in a different class. Yeah. If you're talking about Washington, D.C., or if you're talking about, um, you know, some of the Indian reservations or, or um, where they have the federal courts that deal with more of the petty yeah. crimes or the lesser sophisticated yeah. crimes, then yes, that can work. Um, but mm -hmm. when you're dealing with just generally speaking, the federal crimes, it, it doesn't quite match up. But yeah, um, and I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm sure, Judge, you have something to share. We, we, we at the Urban Institute have done a fair amount of research on the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and there's certainly no lack of mental health or brain disease among that population. Judge? I agree and I, I think also I'd like to see the federal government work to try to scale this program nationally in the state court system. In fact, yeah. thanks to the Ornsteins um, and through the attention of the uh, documentary, we've actually been working with several members of Congress just this week and they're looking at putting legislation together 
to see how they can scale what we've done here throughout the country, both federal and state systems. Terrific, thanks. So now it's time for wrap up. I'm going to ask each panelist to give one piece of advice. So I imagine that a lot of our viewers are on this to learn more because they want to either adapt or expand an existing program like JDP or maybe start one from scratch. So you're talking to an eager audience that wants to know what one piece of advice do you have? And we're going to start in reverse order than what we did um, previously. So we'll start with Havsi. Well, since I'm representing CIT, I absolutely want to recommend our CIT International Guide. Uh, you can access it again at CITinternational.org. Um, and this is a wealth of knowledge and information for all communities, whether you are just beginning to implement a program or are far along. I, I strongly urge you that you look into that guide for further guidance on CIT. Thank you. Thanks, Hopsy. Sergeant Blackerby. Um, an idea can be a very profound thing. And I think that the pushback that people get will, will give for a new idea can really, can really be incredibly harmful. Um, this idea, this concept that's been developed, that Judge Leifman and, and Hopsi and, and all of us have been su such a great part of, is an idea that more agencies really should adopt. They should take a good hard look at it. And there's been a, obviously the, the discussion here has been largely that of dealing with individuals who are in mental crisis. But one of the powerful benefits of the CIT program is that what you're getting from it is genuinely a kinder, gentler police department. And when you're dealing with an individual who's simply angry, they're not in mental crisis, but you have a, a culture within the agency that can provide these people with an outlet. Maybe you have a CIT officer who is there to deal with someone who's just angry. You, can, you have a, a more powerful tool to de-escalate that entire scene. So this is not just, this program is not just for people who are in mental crisis. This is for your entire city. This is for your entire county. These, these are for the people whom we serve. So that's why I think it's, it's, the idea is a good one. Take it and run with it. Thank you for that. Alejandro. I have to say you have to get a good set of tires because it's a bumpy ride. But I will <laughs> say. I think I always, I always want communities to familiarize themselves with the sequential intercept model. It's a conceptual model. It's designed to assist cities and counties in determining how people with mental illness and substance use disorders flow from the community to the criminal justice system and then eventually return to the community. And, and I would suggest that everybody create a local strategic plan Base it on the gaps you find in your system and the resources you have in your community, and then prioritize, identify uh, where your priorities lie. Mm -hmm. I, I'm gonna um, provide an addendum to that, which is um, find yourself a good grant writer, um, because there are resources from the federal government and the Bureau of Justice Assistance um, that can help you get you started. Um, let's turn it over to Jenny. 
Um, I, you know, I tried to think of the best advice that I could give. Um, and to be honest, I think it's communication. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that has allowed our program to be so successful um, is that we do communicate. Um, and not just, you know, not just with the court or in court, um, but the, the public defender, um, the, the assistant public defender who, who um, works in the program and all the public defenders and the private attorneys, um, we do have an open dialogue. Um, and, and the team, we all work together. It really truly is a team where we are all working together towards the same goal. Um, you know, I've worked with Alejandro for years in, in the diversion court um, and I trust him, you know, and I know if he's coming to me to talk to me about something, um, there's a real reason for that, you know, and, and I think the fact that we are so willing to communicate allows us to have different perspectives and to really figure out the best way to reach all the goals, which is really to protect the community. Um, and, and I think that's the most important thing is communication. So, right. So communication and collaboration and yes. everyone has having a shared and vested interest and in yes. success. Thank you. Well, um, you know, I flipped the order for a reason because I thought it was only appropriate to give Judge Leifman the, the last word here. Um, and you, you have like five minutes if you want it uh, to wrap things up. What's your advice? I appreciate it. I, I, the first thing I would say is don't be overwhelmed. Just start. We, we joke, but we like to say we're a 20-year overnight success. We built over a long period of time and we started slow. And the other piece of this that you need to understand, or the audience needs to understand, I know you understand, you don't have to rebuild your entire system to fix this. There is a small subset of individuals with serious mental illnesses that are accessing most of the resources. And so we did a study uh, a few years ago through the University of South Florida. We sent them the names of 3,300 people that had been arrested in Miami-Dade that we knew had mental illnesses, and they have the capacity to tell a community who the highest utilizers of criminal justice and mental health services are. And we thought, hey, if they can narrow it to 1,000 people, we can start to direct our resources to 1,000. You know, we have 3 million plus another million of tourists here a year. We could handle 1,000 people. Shockingly, they narrowed it down to 97 people, primarily men, primarily diagnosed with schizoaffective or schizophrenia type disorder, primarily homeless, and primarily uh, co-occurring, meaning they had a substance use disorder. These 97 people were arrested over a five-year period 2,200 times. They spent 27,000 days in the Dade County Jail. They spent 13,000 days at a community or state psychiatric uh, state-funded facility cost taxpayers $14.7 million, and we got nothing for it. And so if you start your program by focusing on the high utilizers, you get an immediate financial uh, impact and a public safety impact, which then allows you to start to move some of those resources to the front end of the system to help this from repeating itself. And so to follow up uh, what Alejandro was saying, the first thing I would suggest you do, and you can do it through a BJA or a SAMHSA grant, is to have a summit. And I would suggest that you select a state attorney, the public defender, maybe a sheriff, a police chief, the mayor, or a judge, and have them be the focal point to invite the parties to the table. You need to have someone 
you know, I, I, the other thing we joke about is it's good to be judged because people come to our meetings even if they don't want to be there. So you need someone that can do that. And then I would suggest that you have an outside facilitator, not someone from in the community, that who's an expert in these areas that could help facilitate. And then what you need to do, like Alejandro suggested, is map out the system because every community is different. There's not a single switch to fix this. And so you're going to have better and worse things in your own community. And once you've identified these gaps, what we did, which I strongly recommend, is we put together a written collaborative agreement that all the important stakeholders, these were elected officials, heads of agencies, came into my chambers. They signed this document, put their name on this document, promising that they would make these systematic changes. We picked an arbitrary date, I think it was April of 2000, and we just began. And, 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 and it has resulted in changing everything from the screening tools at the jail to having a process to move this population to, to do better assessments and, and get all the um, uh, uh, providers to agree to take this population. Our Department of Corrections acts as our Department of Transportation. We figured it all out over time and, and, and it works. And, and the thing to remember is, look, it's not nefarious. It's not one person or one party or one institution that created this. This has been a perfect storm for a bunch of issues. And if anything, this pandemic and this uh, better understanding of some of our racial disparity issues that have come up, it's given us a time to reset. And I think the worst thing that we could do is go back to the system that didn't work, that is enormously expensive, enormously painful, enormously counterproductive, and start to implement changes like this that just work for everybody. And, and um, you know, I couldn't be prouder of the people I work with, the people that are on this panel. Um, look, I, I get a lot of credit for having a vision, but I never could have done it without the amazing staff and, and, and people that work with us that really are so committed to these individuals, whether it's a police officer or my peers or the amazing folks that you see here today, they change lives every day and they save lives every day. And um, the worst thing you can do is not do this. If you want to save money, improve your public safety, address some of these really difficult issues you have there, this is the way to go about doing it. So, Judge, you, you mentioned the summit um, and you mentioned key stakeholders, but one um, category of stakeholder you didn't mention, and I, I, I expect you to agree, is people who have um, experienced mental illness, experienced the criminal justice system, and experienced um, recovery so that they can share their own recovery stories um, with these other key, mostly criminal justice stakeholders. Would you agree with that? You know, I've been doing this so long, I think of them as part of our team. So 100%. And they were in on the original summit. We had family members. We had people with lived experiences. We had everybody at the table. And, you know, we call some folks traditional stakeholders and non-traditional stakeholders. And all of those people had to be in the room to make all of this happen. Um, because part of it's an educating process by going through it and understanding these illnesses. The other quick thing that we didn't do, if you were to ask me, what would you do, do different? The only thing I would have been done different um, at the time is I would have invited uh, child psychiatrists, pediatricians, and school board members 
to have been part of the summit. And the reason we didn't do it is because new science has come out since. And what we know is that trauma is a huge contributor to this population. 92% uh, of all the women in jail and prisons in the United States with serious mental illnesses were sexually abused as children. And about 75% of men who are in jail and prisons with these serious mental illnesses also have very serious histories of trauma. We should be using assessment tools like ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and we should be assessing all middle-aged uh, kids, identifying trauma, and getting them treated. We could have kept two generations out of our system already if we had started this okay. 20 years ago. And so when you're doing your summit, the other non-traditional stakeholder should be the kids, and let's get ahead of the curve and keep them from growing into our system. Thank you again for tuning in to this special revisit of the definition of insanity, where we learned about some of the key players instrumental in the development of this unique program aimed at combating the mental health crisis in the Miami-Dade area. Please find the link in the description for more information about this program. As always, thanks to Christopher Mitchell, our manager of digital content and strategy for producing today's episode, and many thanks to you for listening to this episode of Encore, a Precinct 444 podcast from the National Law Enforcement Museum. We hope you learned something new from this episode of Encore and will join us next time when we revisit past museum programs and conversations. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to Precinct 444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.